Well, we continue this morning in our journey through Luke. Today we've seen Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah, as the King who has come, as the Lord, as the Son of God, and he's been speaking words to identify himself, and he's particularly been doing actions, action, action, action. We've seen him healing, we've seen him delivering, we've seen him doing miracles and nature and in all kinds of amazing ways and offering forgiveness to those who certainly don't merit it. Now, I want to remind you of Luke's intent for writing his gospel account that you might have certainty about who Jesus is. And our purpose at Holy Cross this year is to see Jesus clearly in 2020. And boy, don't we need to do that this year more than ever. This is such a strange year. It's good to be focusing so deeply upon seeing Jesus. For the next few weeks, we'll be looking at kingdom stories or parables, which are earthly stories that have a heavenly meaning. Lloyd Ogilvy, in his book, Autobiography of God, which has deeply affected both my thinking about the parables and even my message and understanding of this parable of the Good Samaritan that we heard today. Well, Lloyd Ogilvy says that parables are God's own story about himself that are told in ways that we can comprehend. It's his own self-revelation coming out in story form, just like we would tell stories about ourselves or our family, sharing who we are through the tales that we tell. And within each parable, there is one central truth. Think about a ball of yarn with one string hanging out. If you can get a hold of that one string, the whole ball can come unraveled. That's the way a parable works. Get that core truth, and the rest begins to make sense. This week, we have heard the parable, this much-beloved and well-known parable of the Good Samaritan. So we want to see if we can take a bit of a dive into it. Let's start with a prayer, though. Let's pray a moment as we come to the Holy Scriptures. Father, we ask you, give us patience and give us a heart to hunger after you to understand. And please now, Lord, open the Scriptures by God's grace. Pour out your Holy Spirit through my words and into our hearts and minds that we might know you, that you might reveal yourself in your son Jesus. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Well, so let's see if we can unpack this beautiful passage. Jesus has uh, begun teaching again, as he so often did. This is following the return of the 72. He sent them out on a preaching mission. They've gone out to proclaim the kingdom. They've had this wildly uh, wonderful success, and they come back rejoicing. And Jesus begins to, to speak. A crowd is gathered. There's a man there. You can see him if your eyes will focus in on the edge of things, watching, intent, listening. Imagine a mixture of desire within him, a, a bit of inner turmoil because of Jesus. There's a battle going on inside, perhaps a bit of desire, but there's a threat as well. Excitement and threat all mixed into one, as so often happens when people get around the Lord. This man is identified by our text as a religious lawyer, 
an expert in the Mosaic Law. You've got to see him. You've got to, to get him in your sight. He's crisp. There he is. He's, he's proper. There's an officialness about him. He's wearing robes, but he is, he is ramrod straight. Probably like they teach our singers when they need to get down there and get their diaphragm going just straight as can be. Meticulous in his dress, in his manner, in his bearing, in his life. Formidable, intense, and purposeful. Everything about him communicates to everyone around him a refined legalism. He is a highly, highly religious man. And in accordance with religious tradition, he would have had a phylactery upon his forehead. This was a calfskin box that would be tightly bound to the head with leather thongs. And it symbolized to everyone around his orthodoxy and his commitment to upholding God's words above all else, to staying pure above all else, to doing what God wants above all else. Now, this whole phylactery thing has a background, of course, in the scriptures coming to, uh, uh, to the Jewish people from Exodus 13. God had told his people upon delivering them out of Egypt that he wanted them to remember what he had done for them. He brought them out of Egypt, so therefore keep a sign on your foreheads. Then later in Deuteronomy 6, following the summary of the law, what's known as the Shema, uh, these words are heard. And, and these words, the words of the law that I command you today, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So that's where this idea of a phylactery originated. And the Jews would write passages of scripture on small pieces of parchment, put those in the box so that they literally had God's word on their mind. And they carried it around in front of them so that they never forgot. And they might write passages like the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your might, your strength. They might even write Leviticus 19.18, which called for love for neighbor as oneself. So that's the setting, this man, this religious lawyer who begins to engage Jesus with a question that sounds to me highly prepared and even challenging. The text says in verse 25, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. And there's your clue about his motives. He wants to find out, does Jesus pass muster? Does he cut the mustard, if you will? Will Jesus answer correctly? Does he know what's right and what's true? Teacher, the man asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for a debate. He's a lawyer. He wants to argue. Perhaps an opportunity to show Jesus up in front of the crowds. But Jesus is never fooled and he isn't here. And he won't be drawn into a needless argument and what he does is he turns the man's question around on him. Verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What do you think? Jesus asks. 
It seems to me that Jesus probably knows the man wants to answer his own question. Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Those are very possibly the very scriptures in his phylactery. And so Jesus responds, you're right. That's the right answer. You've answered correctly. Well done. Just do that and you will live. Now, Jesus knows, of course, that no one does that. Not fully. No one fully loves God. No one fully loves our neighbor as ourselves. Not continually, not entirely, not with a whole heart, not from the time of our birth to the time of our death, because we all have a problem within us called sin, which leads to selfishness, which leads to a lack of love of God and love for others. It makes us incapable of fully loving God and others. But Jesus is right. If you just do that, you will live. The lawyer... He's not looking for a quick answer. He didn't come to be dismissed. He came for a debate, and he intends to come out on top. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I think there's a remarkable patience in Jesus. He doesn't whisper, oh, this guy's killing me. That might be what I would say, but not Jesus. But what he does is he reframes the question by telling a story that answers not the question the man asked, but the question the man should have asked. The man asked a qualifying and limiting question, who's my neighbor, which means who's not my neighbor. The real question Jesus points to is how shall I act as a neighbor? And that's when he tells the story of the man who's robbed and beaten and left for dead on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And all of Jesus' hearers knew exactly the road that he was talking about. It was a real road with a really bad reputation because it was a really dangerous road. If you don't know the geography of Jerusalem, it sits on a mountain and there's a long road leading down from up high to down low. Jericho is down near the Jordan River. And in those days, there was a windy road with plenty of places that robbers would hide and often jump out and mug or kill passers-by. It was a bad place. The road was actually nicknamed the Bloody Way because it was very dangerous. So everybody knows what he's talking about. Everybody knows the story that he's telling. And of course, in the story first comes by the priest and then the Levite, a lay assistant who worked in the temple, and they both pass on by without stopping to help the man lying there on the road. Now put yourself in their shoes for a minute. It's a dangerous road. The criminals could still be around. They might get themselves killed trying to help this person. And you might hear them. You might hear them wondering, I don't like the looks of this. This is really not my issue. Besides, he's probably already dead. And if he is dead, I sure don't want to become ritually defiled by touching a dead body. And that's what the law said would happen. And I can't serve God if I'm ritually defiled by touching a dead body. And therefore, I need to pass on by to the other side. And somebody else will deal with this. There's a kind of justification going on within 
that allows them to look the other way and move on through. And besides, they'd be all off schedule, wouldn't they? You know, if you think about the lawyer and the crowd listening to Jesus, they're not expecting the first two guys to pass by. But I think we could probably understand it. Maybe we could change the situation a little bit. Maybe uh, if you don't envision somebody left for dead, how many times have you been zipping by on the interstate doing 80 miles per hour and there's somebody on the side of the road and you think, oh, maybe I should stop, but I'm late and I'm behind schedule and gosh, the traffic's moving awfully fast and it's a long way to turn back around and you know what, somebody else will probably stop and help them out anyway and it's probably too dangerous. You see, we're not so far away from them, many of us perhaps. Anyway, what happens next in the story is what floored all of Jesus' listeners because Jesus now inserts the hero in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And you can almost hear the groan from the crowd. A Samaritan? You've got to be kidding me. Jews hated Samaritans. How can he be the hero? Jesus putting a Samaritan as a hero of the story would be like going to the Democratic National Convention this fall and telling a story and putting President Trump in as the good guy. Or, conversely, it would be like going to the Republican convention this fall and putting in Biden as the one who is worthy of your election. Everybody's claws on both sides would come out. Wait a minute, they can't be the good guy. We know what they stand for. We understand their motives. We understand what they're really like. That's what's going on here. The kind of hatred of heart that we all carry around for those who are different from us. We have different perspectives. The Jews saw the Samaritans as unclean and defiled, as immoral, as lacking in character, apostates religiously to be avoided at all costs, despicable. The listeners are surprised at what Jesus is doing here because the Samaritan is showing costly love costly love and the lawyer of course is now backed into a corner because jesus asks him the question in verse 36 which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and the lawyer answered the one who showed him mercy and jesus said to him you go and do likewise it's brilliant it's, it's masterful it's convicting at least it is for me now, remember what I said at the beginning, that, that the parables are God's autobiography as told through Jesus. And they have a central truth that unfolds with all kinds of implications about God or about us or about living in God's kingdom as his citizens. And they're intended to, to be like a blazing revelation about God that then affects the way we live. Jesus is showing the lawyer and us through the Samaritan, what God's love is like. It knows no boundaries. It is limitless. 
It is not for the worthy or the clean or the religious. It's for everyone who needs it. And we all need it. I need it. And you need it. And the people around you need to know the love of God in Jesus Christ. The Samaritan is intended to show us more than just human kindness in response to a need. The point of this story is that God's love isn't qualified or constricted by the rules of religion. As so many people would try to force God into. God's love isn't calculated or constrained. It isn't miserly. It isn't lacking. There is no limit. There is always more. And friends, Jesus himself is the good Samaritan. He's the true neighbor who didn't have to, but yet still entered into this world to show us costly and limitless love, the love of God, the nature of God, God's heart toward us. And the world he has come to save is a Jericho road of suffering and a Jericho road of wounding. And we have all been both those who suffer and those who have wounded, those who have been in need and those who have been callous and uncaring and passing by. God's response to human need and his suffering is a costly self-giving. This is love. This is divine love. This is God's love. And when you see that you are the man or the woman who is on the road, and sometimes you are the priest or the Levite, or perhaps the lawyer seeking to justify yourself, when you see your need, You'll either fall on your face in love and gratitude or, by God's grace, you'll be broken of your self-righteousness and recognize your own need. Many of you are beaten up and you are burnt out and you're broken down because of your own sin, because of the wounding of the people in your life. But God in Christ has come to save you. He has come to rescue you. He has come to throw open his arms wide to you and say all can be forgiven. All can be restored. All can be healed. Not by what you do, but by coming to the one who has come to find you and to save you. And when you allow that love to invade your life, it begins to clean you up to change the way you see, to change the way you see yourself. And when you know yourself as one deeply loved by God, you suddenly can be one who can love others with that same kind of love you have received. Your heart starts to become like his heart. You can learn to be generous with your love, with your money, with your kindness, with your words, with your forgiveness, with your tenderness, you can reach into the brokenness and the messiness of the lives of the people around you to be a vessel and a channel of the same love that you have been given. This is what it means to be a kingdom citizen, to be a person who has been found on the road and cleaned up and healed by the costly love of God. Will you dare to be that kind of person? Will you allow him to come and meet you in your mess today 
Will you let go of your need to justify yourself and simply accept grace? That's the question for you today. And if you say yes to the grace, yes to the love, will you then go out and give it away to others? Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you show us who you are, who you really are. And you invite us, Lord, to move from being those who wound others to heal others as we receive healing from the wounds that you have borne for us. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the costliness that you bore in entering in and dying on a cross and then being raised from death for our life and resurrection. May we love you because you first loved us. And may we love others because of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.